Mm. Man, that was so much fun. So fun. Well, good morning. Um, I am so glad you're here today. I'm Shelly. I'm the creative arts pastor, and I am beyond excited about the message today. All right, which is surprising because we're in the book of Judges, which is not a thing you usually get excited about, but I am very excited. We are in week two on our series about Judges, and Curtis did a great job starting us out last week talking about Ehud, the left-handed judge. I'm left-handed too, so I thought it was a very cool story. But in case you missed last week, I want to set the scene for you. The book of Judges is in the Old Testament. That's in the front of the Bible, okay? And it's about seven books in. It's pretty much close to the front there. And it describes this really tumultuous time in the Israelites' history. The last verse of the book pretty much captures the vibe of the time. It says, in those days, Israel had no king. All the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. That's pretty much it. I mean, everybody did whatever they wanted, which is a pretty good recipe for disaster. <laughs> and that's what happened. God's people found themselves trapped in a cycle, and it started Every time, it started with idolatry. They worshipped their neighbor's gods, gods like Baal and Ashtoreth. And their desperate attempt to be like everyone else around them would always lead to oppression. Often, this is a weird part, at the very hands of the people they were trying to be like. And then God would take pity on them and raise up a judge. And like Curtis said last week, it's not like a judge in a courtroom. In this case, a judge is more like, like a governor, but also a rescuer. And then the judge would lead the people to victory. They would throw off their oppressors. And for a minute, things would look pretty good. And then the judge would die, and the people would be leaderless, and the whole thing would start over again. And this cycle happened over and over. And the book of Judges is a very repetitive book because God's people kept making the same mistakes again and again. And we do too, which is why this is a very important book to read. And I know that Judges is not exactly your summer beach read, okay? You're probably you're not going to be like, I'm sitting by the pool. I think I'm going to read the book of Judges. No, probably not. Um, but it is a lot like a summer movie blockbuster, okay? It has these epic battles and explode, you know, like explosions and aliens and epic soundtrack. And, and this story has all of that stuff except for the aliens, but has all the rest of the stuff. Now, I cannot give you a movie version, but... I can dramatically, some might say over-dramatically, read to you the story of Deborah from the NLT version, accompanied by graphic panels from the Action Bible. Okay? How does that sound today? Yeah? 
Oh, we're doing this. Okay, so are you ready? Here we go. Now you can check this in your Bible later. It is the book of Judges, chapter 4. Here we go. <laughs> After Ehud's death, the Israelites again did evil in the Lord's sight. So the Lord turned them over to King Jabin of Hazor, a Canaanite king. And the commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harasheth Hagoyim. And Sisera, who had 900 iron chariots, ruthlessly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years. Stop! That's migraine! Huh, it's ours now. What are you going to do about it? Uh-huh. And then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help. We have to do something to stop these Canaanites. Let's go see Deborah, the prophetess, and judge. I'm throwing in the voices for extra for y'all, okay? So, Deborah, the wife of Lapidoth, was a prophet who was judging Israel at that time. And she would sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites would go to her for judgment. What can we do? The Canaanites are stealing our food. So one day, she sent for Barak, son of Abinoam, who lived in Kadesh in the land of Naphtali. Take a message to Captain Barak in the north country. Tell him to come at once. Mm, okay. <laughs> okay. But wait, does she mean war? Oh, we don't stand a chance against the Canaanites. They have like 900 iron chariots, and we have only a few crude weapons. Mm -hmm. uh, okay. So they went. They brought Barak back. And she said to him, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, commands you. Call out 10,000 warriors from the tribes of Naphtali and Zebulun and Mount Tabor. And I will call out Sisera, commander of Jabin's army, along with his chariots and warriors, to the Kishon River. And there I will give you victory over him. Barak told her, I will go, but only if you go with me. Okay, now side note. This was not an unusual request, okay? Remember, Deborah isn't just a judge. She's also a prophet, and a prophet is someone with divine knowledge who speaks the word of God. And taking a prophet into battle was like taking a secret weapon. So yeah, he's definitely going to ask her to go. And so she says, very well, she replied, I will go with you. But you will receive no honor in this venture, for the Lord's victory over Sisera will be at the hands of a woman. Okay, so... Deborah went with Barak to Kadesh. And at Kadesh, Barak called together the tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali, and 10,000 warriors went up with him. And Deborah went also with him. And now Heber, the Kenite, a descendant of Moses' brother-in-law, Hobab, had moved away from the other members of his tribe and pitched his tent by the oak of Zananinim, Near Kadesh. Wait, wait, just like, okay, I have to stop. Is that not the most random thing? We are setting up this epic battle. We've got all these armies and soldiers coming in, and all of a sudden, we, we read about this guy 
who goes off and pitches a tent by himself in the middle of nowhere. It's like, like just like, huh? What? What? Okay, we'll put a pin in that because there's nothing random in the Bible and we're going to come back. It's going to be super important in just a second. All right, back to the story. When Sisera was told that Barak, son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, he called for all 900 of his iron chariots and all his warriors, and they marched from Harasheth Agoyim to the Kishon River. And then Deborah said to Barak, get ready. This is the day the Lord will give you victory over Sisera, for the Lord is marching ahead of you. And this is Deborah's brave heart moment, you know, freedom. And so Barak led his 10,000 warriors down the slopes of Mount Tabor into battle. And when Barak attacked, the Lord threw Sisera and all his chariots and warriors into a panic. Sisera leaped down from his chariot, and he escaped on foot. And then Barak chased the chariots and the enemy army all the way to Hersheth Hagoyim, killing all of Sisera's warriors, and not a single one was left alive. Meanwhile, Sisera ran to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, the random dude who pitched his tent all by himself in the middle of nowhere. Not so random now. So he's there at the tent in the middle of nowhere because Heber's family was on friendly terms with King Jabin of Hazor. Okay, not a coincidence. And this, friends, is where the Action Bible fails us. We have to imagine this next bit ourselves. So Jael, the guy's wife, went out to meet Sisera, and she said to him, Oh, come into my tent, sir, out in the middle of nowhere, random. Come on in. Don't, don't be afraid. Come in. So he went into her tent, and she covered him with a blanket. Please give me some water, he said. I, I'm, I'm thirsty. So she gave him some milk from a leather bag, and she covered him again. Stand at the door of the tent, he told her. If anybody comes and asks you if anyone is here, say no. Hmm? But when Sisera fell asleep from exhaustion, Jael quietly crept up to him with a hammer and tent peg in her hand. And then she, no lie, drove the tent peg through his temple and into the ground. And the Bible said, and so he died. Well, I would think so. I mean, thank you. I just, I don't, when Barak, Barak came looking for Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and she said, oh, come, I will show you the man you're looking for. Mm -hmm. So he followed her into the tent and he found Sisera lying there dead with the tent peg through his temple. Thank you, Action Bible, for not showing us that. I mean, that's a lot. But on that day, Israel saw God defeat Jabin, the Canaanite king. And from that time on, Israel became stronger and stronger against King Jabin until they finally destroyed him. The end. What do you think? That is a... not a little... 
hey kids, it's time for story time. Like that is a lot, right? I mean, a lot. And I read that and I just, I gotta be honest, part of me, like a small, maybe this much part of me wants to go, yeah! Because I love reading about a strong female leader in the Old Testament. I mean, we don't get, you know, a ton of that. So I get really excited. I love reading about that. I love reading um, about Jael. I mean, that's kind of too much for me, but still. And I love reading about how Deborah and Barak work together to follow God's plan. And we, we could stop right there and we could make it a story about leadership. And I've heard that taught before. Uh, but, but somehow, I don't think this is Deborah's Guide to Winning Battles and Toppling Regimes. <laughs> no, okay, no. It can't be just that. So I spent some more time with this story. And while I was studying, I learned a Hebrew word that I have been dying to share with you. I mean, I have just been holding this inside like I'm going to explode because I'm just like, this is the best thing ever. Sometimes English does not give us the right word, but this Hebrew word, y'all, is my new favorite word. I'm going to give it to you right now, and then it can become your new favorite word. It is dorshini. Dorshini. Not DiGiorno, but dorshini. Dorshini, in the Jewish tradition, rabbis say that sometimes the Torah, the scripture, the Bible, will yell at you. Like you're reading along, and all of a sudden you're like, wait, what? Like something jumps out or sticks out. Something that makes you tilt your head and go, huh? Rabbis call those moments Dorshini moments because it means Dorshini is when the Bible is yelling, search me. It's a call to look closer, to ask questions, to dive deep. And I never had a word for it, but oh my goodness, I hope this happens to you. And if you respond to those Dorshini moments and you go down those rabbit holes, you can learn some amazing things. So today, I want to share two Dorshini moments that I had while studying for this story, and let's just see if it adds some more texture and meaning um, for you like it did for me. We'll just see, okay? Sound good? All right. Well, we're doing it regardless, so that's what we're doing. All right, so the first Dorshini moment I stumbled on, it happened like almost like right off the bat when I opened my paper Bible. You see a picture of it here. Look, there we go. Okay, so you see, what we just read is chapter four. That is the story. That's the narrative. We just read that. But then chapter five, the very, like, just like on that same page even, it's the same exact story, only set as a song, a really long song. Y'all, it goes, it goes like pages and pages, this song. And I thought, why? 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 Why do we need that? Why do we need a giant poem 
that goes on and on, pages and pages. When we just read the story, we already know what happens. So I was like, why? Uh, Dorshini. So I went down that rabbit hole, explored a little. And first I discovered that the Song of Deborah, which is what chapter 5 is called, is one of the oldest songs in the Bible. Next I found out it's not a solo. It was a duet sung by Deborah and Barak together. It's an anthem. Theologian Barbara Reed said, these songs are not sweet lullabies. They are militant songs that exult in the saving power of God that has brought defeat to those who have subjugated God's people. Remember, this is a pre-literate society. They're not carrying around copies of the Torah in their pocket, okay? Their history and their stories are they're carried through these poems and songs, and they're full of emotion and drama. Listen to this. This is part of the song. In the days of Shamgar, son of Anath, and in the days of Jael, people avoided the main roads, and travelers stayed on winding pathways. There were few people left in the villages of Israel until Deborah arose as a mother for Israel. Kind of sounds like Lord of the Rings stuff, you know? In the days of Shemgar. I mean, this song has all this emotion and drama along with details that flesh out the story. And this is why I discovered it's kind of like the story draws the lines, but then the song paints in the colors, which brought me to my second Darshini moment, the river. So in the song, the river scene is super dramatic. Listen. The kings of Canaan came and fought at Tanakh near Megiddo Springs, but they carried off no silver treasures. The stars fought from heaven. The stars in their orbits fought against Sisera. The Kishon River swept them away, that ancient torrent, the Kishon. March on with courage, my soul. Then the horse's hooves hammered the ground, the galloping, galloping of Sisera's mighty steeds. And I thought, wow, that's cool. But also, what is happening? Why did they ride their horses into the river? I mean, I'm not a, like a military strategist, but I just think that sounds like a, a bad idea. So I was like, what in the world? Dorshini. So I went all the way down that rabbit hole, and I am so glad I did. Y'all, you guys see this. Let me take you to the Jezreel Valley, where this all happened. Now, when I read the Bible, sometimes I kind of picture everything as just brown. I don't, because I've never been there, so I don't know. I'm just like, is it just brown and dust? Here is the Jezreel Valley. Look at this place. It is absolutely gorgeous. It's often called the heart of the promised land. It's a 141-square-mile triangular valley, and it's hemmed in by rolling mountains. The Jezreel Valley has alluvial soil, which I had to look up, and it means that the soil has deposits, deposits of clay and silt and sand and gravel, and it's all left by this flowing water, and it makes for this very fertile ground. And today, the Jezreel Valley is Israel's breadbasket. It's where they grow all their food. 
But that ground, mm, it is soaked in blood. It is the place of so many battles besides the one we read about today. The valley was at the crossroads of international trade routes. So it connected people to major cities in Egypt and Damascus. There were only six ways in and out. You had to go through the valley to get anywhere important. It's like a giant X marks the spot. Get this. You remember this guy? Can we have his hat? He looks there. Napoleon? All right, you guys. Napoleon fought in this valley. He beat the Ottomans there in 1799, and he called it, hear this, the Jezreel Valley, the most natural battleground of the whole earth. Isn't that wild? People have been fighting over this place forever. It's like really important. And all of a sudden, I'm paying a lot more attention to what I'm reading. And the horses galloping toward the river. Oh, y'all, this is my favorite part because you know I'm a nerd and we're going to have some science. Okay, this is my favorite part. I learned that there is a basalt flow that ribbons across the valley from Mount Tabor to Megiddo. Now, I had to look up what that was, but listen, here's our quick science lesson. Basalt flows are basically when lava just squeezes up out of the earth, but not in like a volcano. It just bloop. So I learned about two kinds of basalt flows. Sometimes molten rock or lava will squish up from the earth like it's coming out of a Play-Doh fun factory. It's like, you know? And when it does that, when it hardens, it forms these columns. Here, look, look at that. It looks like somebody carved them. That's like a basalt flow. It comes up in that little square. So that's one way it happens. But the Jezreel Valley basalt flow it started like this. Okay, see how this is just kind of oozing along? It's just kind of bleh. And that doesn't like bleh. It doesn't, it doesn't look very, very useful, but you have to see what happens when it hardens. There it is, hardened. It turned into a natural highway that wound all the way through the valley. So now you think about the story. Hmm. Of course, Sisera thinks <laughs> he could take his horses and his 900 iron chariots. He can roll on down the highway and take out this measly army with their pitchforks and garden hose. Of course he can. It's all the road is paved. He can, it's easy. They got nothing. He's rolling in with tanks, easy. And they don't worry about that river because it's the dry season. Also, even if it weren't, Sisera and his army, guess who they worship? They worship the Canaanite god Baal, who is the god of earth and rain. So they got this. They're untouchable, no problem. Until Yahweh shows up and the god above all gods unleashes a fraction of his power have you ever seen i hope you haven't been in one but maybe you've seen a video have you ever seen a flash flood just 
coming out of nowhere. Like it goes from a trickle and then all of a sudden, that's this, okay? That's this. And the chariots rolling down that highway that were their strength became their greatest weakness because they're blown off the highway, washed off the highway, whoosh, wheels logged in, lodged in the mud. Their heavy armor is weighing them down and everything that made them strong is now their greatest weakness. And Deborah and Barak's army rush down the mountain and they conquer their enemies. And it's an amazing story. And the Israelites were rescued. And for one shining moment, things were good. (sighs) But then look at this last panel from the Action Bible. The people rejoice and sing praises too. And for 40 years, there is peace in Israel. Families work in their fields and harvest their crops. But in time, they again forget God and find themselves in more trouble than ever before. They started that cycle back up again. And I can't help thinking, even when we have great leaders, even when we win, when everything seems to go our way, it will never be enough. There's a verse we're threading throughout this series. It's Proverbs 14, 12. There is a path before each person that seems right, but it ends in death. See, on our own, on our own, we will always reboot that cycle. We just will. We will always need a rescuer. So, I'm so glad that instead of sending person after person, God the Father loves us so much that he sent Jesus, the perfect judge, his son, to rescue us and place the Holy Spirit in us. So we walk around every day with the power to break those cycles. We don't have to live trapped in fear and anger and violence. The spirit of the God who flooded that valley in an instant lives within those of us who believe and follow him today. Paul wrote, and this hope will not lead to disappointment, for we know how dearly God loves us because he has given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with his love. We have already been rescued. We just forget sometimes. And sometimes we pull away. And we do our own thing. And it takes a Dorshini moment to remind us. Y'all, I went into that story thinking I knew that story. And I came out of it thinking, wow, I needed to know that. May I pray over you now? Father, you are so good, 
so mighty, so powerful, God above all gods. Thank you for rescuing us. Thank you for putting your power in us to break these cycles, these loops, these patterns that we get stuck in. And Father, I just pray today for those in the room who don't believe yet. Father, I pray that you would soften their hearts open their minds and let them see you for who you really are. And Father, I pray for those of us in the room today who do believe. I pray that you would soften our hearts and open our minds and help us to see you for who you really are. Thank you for your love and your grace, and your mercy. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.